Right? Hi, I'm glad you're here. Um, I, I want to start off with a with a with a story that sort of was personally uh, meaningful to me, and then maybe it'll strike something in you as well. Um, I guess it, it's, it's, it has a lot to do with sort of my, my, my journey. A lot of people call it their journey, whatever it is. Just a, the spiritual sort of march toward, uh, toward Torah. And, uh, and it, it, you know, I, I've talked about it in, at another time, this sort of like this um, kind of this test that I got when I, when I decided that I wanted to start keeping Shabbos. And um, they wanted to fire me from work. I was writing for a TV show at the time and, and everything like that. And if you're interested in hearing more about that story at all, I wrote it up in an article. Uh, it's on the website on, on Torah on iTunes.com called Keeping Shabbos in Hollywood. And it's on H.com also if you want to read that. But, but this is sort of, there was sort of a, a test that I had before that test. And I want to talk about that right now because that, that one... That one is maybe um, instructive. Um, and, uh, and in retrospect, I really saw kind of the hand of God. Uh, but at the time, not so much. So maybe it's, maybe it's um, useful on that level, just because so many times um, we kind of travel through darkness. And then when we get to the end, we look back and we see that there was a, an order and a, a structure to everything that we had gone through. But while we were going through it, it seemed like we were just crashing into walls and that there was no order to it whatsoever. And so, so, so those are always like moments of like these like giant light bulb moments where it's sort of like, wow, when I thought that I was absolutely alone and abandoned, God was there the whole time. And, and since we spend proportionally so many hours and days and years in the dark and the light bulb moments where we look back and we say, ah, oh, God was there the whole time are like seconds or minutes. You really got to hold on to those, those flashes of inspiration because just to just outweighs by far the, 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 the bulk of life. You know, this is why the Torah itself is so precious. Because the Torah itself is giving you an organizational principle for all of reality and all of life. And so only with the Torah are you able to have those sort of light bulb moments, those moments of inspiration on a regular basis amidst the the darkness. In other words, the Torah is your flashlight in the darkness. Otherwise, what you have to do is you have to depend on just stumbling through the dark and then hopefully you hit a light and then you look back and go, okay, that made sense. But then you're usually plunged back into the darkness. So if you have a flashlight in the darkness, then that's the best of all worlds. So that's the Torah. That's Torah study. That's why it's so essential. Because otherwise you don't really know what's going on. Or it takes you a long time to realize what's going on. So, um, so this is a story from my life. And, um, you know, uh, I was raised... Um, I was raised in a traditional Jewish uh, uh, home uh, that wasn't, wasn't quote-unquote, observant, but, you know, there was a strong belief in God and, um, and, in, and in imparting Jewish education and Jewish identity and everything like that. I guess, technically, it was a reform background um, in terms of the, the, uh, 
the temple that we went to, but um, I'm focusing on the, the home environment right now, what, what, what went on in the home. And, um, you know, we had Pesach and uh, all those things, and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, my mother would say Shema with me, you know, when, when she put me to bed. So, you know, all these, all these things that were really special and really important and, and everything like that. When I was, um, when I was eight years old, um, we, had, we lived in a giant building in New York City. Uh, and there was something like 500 families there. It was a really big building. And only one, uh, one Orthodox family in the entire building. And they were neighbors of ours. They lived a couple of floors away in the same wing of the apartment building. And for my brother, my older brother's 13th birthday for his bar mitzvah present, bless you, they gave him the, um, a subscription to the Chabad uh, children's magazine, the Lubavitcher children's magazine. They weren't Lubavitch themselves. They were very sort of, um, I guess, uh, YU. It would, you know, in fact, their son is a big professor now at YU. Um, so, uh, but nonetheless, that was, the, that was the present, which actually, now that I think about it, was kind of an odd choice, you know? But, um, <laughs> but anyway, but a, a life-changing choice, an inspired choice. And I started reading that children's magazine, which was as, as uh, low-tech as you could get, you know? It was, just, uh, it was just really simple and the most beautiful, wonderful expression of that. And in every issue, which was just a few pages long, there was a Hasidic story, and I remember reading these Hasidic stories when I was eight years old, and feeling like, wow, this is it. This is it. This is how it all works. You know, because in one short story, basically you had not just the presence of God and the existence of God, but you had that God was involved in your life. And that was it. You know, that was really the foundation of my Jewish education, that more than anything else. And, um, and, um, and I remember reading those and being just so, so amazingly touched by them and changed by them. Uh, and then when I was 14, that same neighbor, the Schatzes, Mrs. Schatz, sent my grandmother uh, to the shul across the street from our house, which was Reb Shlomo Karlbach shul. And so I started going there um, when I was 14 years old. And Reb Shlomo was telling over uh, Hasidic stories. And I was like, Yes, I love this. This is fantastic, you know. And more than his music, because he was really known to the world at that point, really because of his music. For me, he was a pulpit rabbi. And very few people, like a tiny percentage of the people who knew him, had that relationship with him. I mean, he was, I mean, really like a handful of people almost, you know. So I was somehow in that category, you know. And, I, you know, I looked forward to the rabbi's Devar Torah, you know, and it was happened to be Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach. So, so, but that was the thing that, that interested me the most. And, of course, when he would tell stories, that was awesome. So when I was, I remember that Simchas Torah, um, so maybe I just turned 15 or I was still 14. It was right, right, right at that time. Uh, Rabbi Shlomo was known for Simchas Torah and he would, People from all over the city would come to dance in his shul, and it was a very, it was like a shtibo, it was a very small shul. Uh, but people would dance, and they would dance out in the street also, and there would be big crowds. And um, I remember uh, one time there, he stood on a chair, and he had a stack of uh, books, holy books, um, uh, uh, volumes from the Talmud and different Hasidic uh, svarim, different uh, Hasidic books. 
and he stood on the, the thing and he auctioned them off. And what he did was, he auctioned them off, what does that mean? That means that he gave people the opportunity to dance with them. So you could, if you, if you won the auction for this book, you got to dance, you got to dance with it. Because there weren't so many Torahs. You know, in Simcha's Torah, people dance with all the Torahs. But how many Torahs were there? And there were a lot of people. So what are you going to dance with? So I've never seen this in another shul. He would hand out volumes of the Talmud and, and, and Sfarim, and you could dance with the Sfarim, right? But you had to earn it. You couldn't just, you couldn't just get a safer. You had to earn it. So how did you earn it? You, the way the auction would go was you had to agree to um, learn the entire safer. So when the entire book. So... So the year that I remember seeing this, I only saw it once because I wasn't there every year, but the one year that I saw him do this, he said, well, you know, last year you had to learn the whole Sefer. Maybe that was asking too much. <laughs> he said, this year you get the book if you agree to learn 10 pages. That's what he said. And then I remember the, the, the auction that I won was for uh, the Torah Semis by Reb Labela Eger. And... He was trying to match Sfarim with people, and he said, okay, yeah, that's a good one for you. So I remember that I kept my word to learn that safer, the 10 pages, about 10 or 15 years later. <laughs> but I did. I absolutely did. I hope that I got 10 pages down, but I certainly, that book is awesome. I mean, that book is just like a nuclear reactor. I mean, it's just incredible. The Torahs in that. Reb Leibola Eger, there are many, many famous, famous stories about him. He was the grandson of Rabbi Akiva Eger, who was like the Vilna Gon in stature in terms of his magnificence and his mastery of the Talmud. And um, the, the reason why there's so many stories about him, besides him being a great Hasidic master himself, was that he lived at a time where there was so much um, going on historically between the birth of the Hasidic movement and its... Um, you know, it's emerging from the, from the what they call the Misnagdid uh, movement, which were, they were sort of uh, suspicious of the Hasidim. They, didn't, they weren't sure that they were going on a Torah path. And so there was a lot of um, tension between the two groups. And so Rabbi uh, Leibola Eger grew up in this royal family of Torah and also um, was wealthy in, in addition but he was really from the what they call the, uh, the, the, the the straight world, you know, or the yeshivish world, whatever it is. And then he went switched over to the Hasidic world, which was a you know sent huge ripples through the uh, through the Torah world. His uh, his coming over, and he became a student of the Kutzker Rebbe and of the Ishvitzer Rebbe, and became best friends really with uh, Reb Tzadik Akon, if you know any of these names. But anyway, so 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 getting back to Shul, so. So that, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it, was, it was actually not that Simchas Torah. That, that happened later on in my life. But the Simchas Torah, when I first started going there, I was 14 or 15 years old. And, um, and I remember dancing with the Torah and feeling this, this sense of completion and this sense of calm and this sense of peace and um, feeling like this was my whole life. And, uh, you know, I'll just uh, digress for a moment. Um, 
Well, maybe, maybe let me just stay on track. So, 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 so not, not long after that, uh, I was going to a, a high school in New York called uh, Bronx Science, Bronx High School of Science, and um, they had a famous speech and debate team. It was really famous for their debate team, but um, you had to work hard to be on the debate team. You didn't have to work at all to be on the speech team. So guess which team I was on? <laughs> I was on the speech team. So I had given some sort of speech in class, and um, the, the teacher of that class was the coach of the speech and debate team, and he was a formidable personality. He was really one of these uh, legendary people. And so much so, he was really like, a, he, he kind of sort of cultivated this um, air of being like a tyrant and an ogre. And, you know, you know, did it almost to comic effect, but really played it up. So much so that he actually played, um, I guess, in amateur productions, he played King Henry VIII and Shakespearean things. So, I mean, he really, he knew the part and he did it in class and he really, like I said, embraced it. So he... So, so he was the teacher and the coach of the speech and debate team, and I guess I gave a speech in one of his classes, and he was uh, sufficiently uh, moved that he, he told me that I should start uh, competing on the speech team. So that was, that was interesting. Now, here's the thing about the speech team. Um, they had competitions almost all the time, and all the competitions were on Saturday morning also known as Shabbos. <laughs> and, um, you know, I wasn't keeping Shabbos, I, but I was going to shul Shabbos morning, so that's part of keeping Shabbos, for sure. But, I mean, what I'm trying to say is, is that my life wasn't in that place yet. I just knew that I loved shul, and I loved hearing Reb Shlomo speak, and I, I loved davening. I loved all those things, but... You know, like I wasn't brought up that way and that's not where my family was at. And it just, you know, it just, whatever. I, I wasn't exactly there yet, but, but I loved it. I loved it. And so for me, it wasn't even so much like, am I not going to be keeping Shabbos? That wasn't really the debate in my mind. It was, I won't be able to go to shul Shabbos morning, which was my Shabbos experience. So... Anyway, there's some nuances in there, but hopefully if you're following me, you, you, you understand where I was holding at the time. So, so anyway, um, so this seemed like to be like a big opportunity because this, was this, this speech and debate team had a national reputation. And here I was getting a chance to sort of like be on this, you know, this like national level team, basically. And um, so, so I didn't know what to do. Because I wanted, to go, I wanted to go to the little shul across the street. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. And, and yet, it seemed like, well, this is kind of like an opportunity, and it's not like I'm orthodox or anything like that, so I'm not exactly, you know, it's not like I committed to something and I'm betraying it. It's just there's something that I want to do, and there's something else. So what am I supposed to do exactly, you know? So, so I... Uh, I don't know who exactly, but someone says, well, why don't you talk with Reb Shlomo about it? So this was like a big deal. I've never, I had never discussed like a life question with a rabbi before. I mean, I was a kid, you know. So that, that was interesting. And Reb Shlomo was really nice. He, he made the time. You know, busy people know how to use their time well. 
And, uh, and so, like, you know, like, you can drive them someplace. And then you can talk in the car. And then you use their time well, you know? Like, that's, that's really using your head. So, so anyway, I, you know, I, I didn't learn how to drive until I was 22. <laughs> but um, but um, he was going to give a speech someplace. He was going to do a teaching at someone's home on the Upper West Side. So he said, why don't you meet me on 79th? And we'll walk together to this place and we'll talk. So he was using his time wisely, you know. So I remember he was walking with me. And um, see, the thing that you have to understand about Rabbi Shlomo, if you don't know it already, was he didn't force anything on anyone. He didn't, he just inspired people. Wherever he went, he just inspired people. And then it was up to you to take it to the next step. That's what it was, you know. And I think people loved that about him and appreciated that about him. And, um, you know, because they understood that this was their decision. They weren't being coerced into anything, you know. And, um, and also, I think that was also partially, I think that that was, that was a conscious choice on his part. But I think it was also partially an aspect about the fact that he was really a Rebbe to the entire world because he was constantly traveling all over the world all the time. You know, he would be in several countries, several continents, over several weeks, you know. He was traveling all over the place, literally, all over the world, all of the time, literally. So there wasn't necessarily that, that time to sort of be with someone every single day over a period of weeks or months. Unless you wanted to travel with him. And many people, like, they just, uh, you know, they would get inspired and, like, and they played the guitar. So they would travel with him for a few weeks, you know. So that... That, that happened also. A lot of people had that experience. Um, so anyway, so I, we were walking together and he wanted to know, he goes, okay, so you've got this opportunity to compete in speech tournaments, but also, you know, I hear you want to come to shul. So he's trying to figure out, like, how, how observant am I? Like, you know, because you can't really gauge what that conflict is unless you know, like, you know, if I'm wearing... If I'm wearing a, a strimal, you know, if I'm a chassid and I'm saying I want to go and compete in speech tournaments. And by the way, just to add a little bit of humor to this, the speech tournaments were held in the Bronx and we were in the Catholic Forensics League. OK, <laughs> and a lot of the competitions were held in classrooms with crucifixes on the walls and things like that. You know, not that that's part of the debate. It's just sort of kind of ironic. You know, it's a little window dressing, a little color for the story there. So but anyway. So, um, so he said to me, uh, we were walking and he said, he said, he said, so, um, you know, I remember him asking me very, very casually, like not to lay a trip on me. He said, do you put on tefillin? Right. Cause he wanted to know, like, how religious am I basically? You know? So I said, uh, well, I said, you know, I had tefillin, but didn't put it on. I mean, there was a period where I did in summer camp, but on a daily basis outside of that, I didn't yet. I do now, but I didn't then. Um, I said no, and he, you know, I, I remember him sort of like absorbing that, you know, getting a better sense of who I was, where I was, what I was asking, what the best advice was, you know. And um, then he started talking about uh, tests, and he talked about the difference between Abraham and Noah. But I, I didn't remember any of that really. I don't really remember anything else about that. I just remember him asking me about whether I put tefillin on or not. That's honestly the only thing I really remember about that. Um, and then we talked some more, and then he was very warm. 
and he didn't tell me what to do. And um, my parents, I guess, ran into him on Broadway or something like that, and they discussed it with him. And, you know, he was so gentle and so kind and, again, didn't want to lay trips on people that they came back and they said, you know, we're so impressed by, by him. He said that you have a gift and you have to develop this gift. Now, what they heard, <laughs> what they heard is, therefore, you should go on these speech tournaments. I don't think he said that. I don't think he said that. And I'll tell you why I really don't think he said that. But that's how we took it. And I did start going on the speech tournaments. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. But later on, now when I'm 24, you know, I'm keeping Shabbos now. And I remember having a moment alone with Reb Shlomo at the Richie's house, actually, on, at 613 North Las Palmas in their kitchen. And I remember saying to Reb Shlomo, I said, you know, you were so patient with me and you were so kind, like, when you told me I should go on those speech tournaments. And his eyes, like, almost flew out of his head. And he didn't say anything, but it was so clear, it was so clear that he hadn't said that. Right? But it's just he didn't want to say the other side so strongly. And he just wanted to be encouraging. So, anyway... You know, but um, I'll never forget that expression of his. It was sort of like, I said that? I didn't say that. You didn't say those words. But anyway, so not only that, but I have to throw in another thing. When I first started, like right around the time when I first started keeping Shabbos, so this is 10 years after that walk, okay? 10 years later, 10 years after that walk, I went to a teaching of Reb Shlomo that he gave in downtown L.A. on Flower Street. All right, I'm not sure why, how it got down there. I think it was the last time it was on Flower Street, you know. And, um, and uh, I walked in and I told him, I said, you know, I'm really trying to learn more. I'm really trying to do more. And, um, and he looked at me and he said, now you have to understand something. Reb Shlomo was with thousands and ten thousands of people. I mean, how many people was he with over that ten year period? Right? So, who knows? At least tens of thousands. At least tens of thousands. And he said to me, when I was there, he said, he said, David, do you remember that walk we took? So that was ten years ago. And then he said to me, do you remember the Parsha? He remembered the Parsha, and he remembered everything that he had said. So, and then... At my wedding, because he married my wife and I, at my wedding years later, he said over the Torahs that he said to me on that walk. Right? So, um, when you love, you remember. That's just something to know. When you love, you remember. And he loved. So, So anyway, I started going on these speech tournaments and I started competing in these categories which, um, which were like uh, the, two, the two categories... Well, I did three categories. Um, one category was called Dramatic Interpretation and I did the inaugural dress of John F. Kennedy. 
and I had very little success with that. I just, I just wasn't very good at it, you know? Um, okay, that was, that was one category. Another category that I did, which were two categories which were very similar. One was called uh, extemporaneous speaking, and the other was called impromptu speaking, which is basically even more extemporaneous speaking. And those were the ones I was good at. Um, and extemporaneous speaking was basically what you would do is um, they would have a whole table full of topics upside down on slips of paper, and you would pick three topics, and they, the topics would be something like, um, how does um, Obama's, uh, how will Obama's health care initiative affect the middle class? That would be like a topic. Or, um, you know, um, what does um, the rising population of uh, Muslims, how will it affect European foreign policy? That, that would be like the, the type of things. Domestic affairs, international affairs, this type of thing. And you'd pick three topics, and you'd get to see those three. And th of those three, you'd pick one. And then you'd have a half an hour to prepare a five to seven minute speech, very well organized on the topic. Okay? That was, that was extemporaneous speaking. Okay, I was pretty good at that. <laughs> then you had impromptu speaking, where the three categories, you'd pick three categories that would be like, Rubber bands, <laughs> bubble gum, <laughs> balconies, right? And you'd pick one from that, and then you'd have a minute to prepare a speech, and it could just be funny, right? You just kind of speak on the topic, and that's all it was. So that, that was the category that I was actually, that I had the most success with, okay? So now, the reason why I tell you that, sorry, this is lots and lots of life detail, but so it goes. I'm, I'm actually... Heading toward a point, believe it or not. Um, so, uh, so, so there was a competition. It was uh, called. Um, it was at Harvard, Harvard, Harvard uh, College, Harvard University, which was very meaningful to me personally because I, I, I wanted to go there, and here I was in high school, so it was very exciting to be able to go to a tournament there and, you know, feel a part of that atmosphere. You know, as a high school student, you know, it was very. Uh, very uh, inspiring, and um, anyway, I I competed in the impromptu category. They had that there, and um, and I did pretty well. You know, I made like the final round, and I got like a little certificate, and that was good. And then I went back the following year, and they were like, "Well, you did pretty well the previous year, so you have to actually win the competition this year." So it was a lot of pressure because I was thinking, oh, man, like I disappoint everyone unless I win first place. At the, this is like a national invitational tournament. Like, how am I going to do that exactly, you know? But went back the following year and, um, and I actually won first place. So that was like a, that was like a, that was a big moment. Now, now uh, as, as a trophy, and now we're starting to get to the, the point of the story here. As a trophy, what I got was a, um, it was a silver plate. I'm sure it was a silver plated plate, but that aside, it was a silver plate and kind of wide, like wider than a dinner plate, like a big serving plate. And it had all sorts of, uh, you know, engravings, curly cues on it, etched in. And it said, you know, said whatever, first place, Harvard, whatever. And uh, 
there it was. So, okay, that's great. And that's, that's, that was the biggest competition I ever won by far. In fact, the, I think the only competition I ever won. Okay, so that was that. Now, now years later, you know, you know, I, I actually ended up getting accepted to Harvard. I'm sure that didn't hurt having that as part of my application. And, um, you know, you know, having having great time at the college and then afterwards and really feeling as though, you know, all these things were great and all these opportunities were great, but that somehow there was much more to life. And that, uh, you know, this world is cool, but we have a soul and our soul lives forever. And so... If you want to, quote unquote, win, if you want to win, you want to win the game that you're really playing, which is the game of the soul, which lives forever. So in other words, this world, as much as you want to have all the pleasures and the comforts of this world, which makes sense because we're humans and everything like that, if it comes at the expense of all of eternity, then what have you won? You know what I mean? I remember I, I just was at my 25th college reunion and I was describing something very similar to a friend and I, I said to him, I said, this world is a sucker's game. You know, because one can, in trying to be successful in, in this realm, basically forfeit the real game that's being played, which is the, the game about forever. So... I started thinking more and more in these terms and I started trying to think about the very big picture and thinking I got to be square with that because that's that's the real that's the real ticket that one right there. So how do I how do I how do I do well with that? Well, okay, so Torah, mitzvahs, kindness, all, all of these things, you know? Really hone in on that. And so this sort of like incremental thing that started when I was much younger, and, uh, you know, that feeling of peace and Torah that I had when I was dancing with the Torah on Simcha's Torah, and just, it started becoming like, okay, well, when am I going to do it? When am I going to do it? I mean, I feel it. It's inside me. It's in my head now. It doesn't happen unless I make a decision to actually do it. Such as it's not going to happen automatically. You know what I mean? It's like masking tape is not going to magically appear on the light switch automatically. Unless I get masking tape, cut it off and put it on there to remind myself not to turn up the light. You know what I mean? It, a decision has to be made. Talking to myself, you know? And uh, anyway, so, so I did that. So I made that decision. And, um, you know, I'm sparing you all the details surrounding that chapter. But anyway, the point is that I made that decision. Then it was sort of like, okay, well, I'm 24, keeping Shabbos. I guess I got to get married now, you know. So, (laughs) So that was a whole journey in itself, you know. It took me a lot of years to find my wife. You know, and I know that that's something that's a big challenge for a lot of people. And they've spent many more years than I spent, but felt like a long time for me, you know, when I was going through it. And um, so 
So I met my wife, thank God, and we got married. And, um, and, of, and we started having Shabbos together. Now this whole thing that I've been telling you about started, it was a whole discussion, if you remember, about Shabbos, right? Because I was going to shul on Shabbos and then, and I wanted to continue to go and then all of a sudden it was sort of like, well, there are these debate tournaments and speech tournaments, right? Which meet on Shabbos, so which one are you going to do? So I described to you how it happened that I ended up at the speech tournaments, right? Um, so now listen to this. Um, you know, there's a custom, it's not a law, but it's a custom, that when women light their Shabbos candlesticks, that they light them on a silver plate. And uh, just to beautify the mitzvah. And my wife did this. And, you know, I never really noticed it or really looked at it or anything like that. But, you know, you see the flames from the candles and the sticks and everything like that. And that's what it is. And one day, after this had been going on for a while... I don't know why exactly, but I went to investigate it further and I saw that the candlesticks were on the silver plate that I had won at the speech tournament. That that was the foundation for the Shabbos, for Shabbos. (laughs) And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Because when I won that plate, at the time, it seems like I was going away from observance. Even though that wasn't really my intention. But, you know, where are you? Are you giving a speech about rubber bands or are you in shul? Well, I mean, when you put it in those terms, I mean, it was as a decision that took me away. If you want to look at it in a black and white level, you know. And yet, I developed, I developed, I developed over the years. I, I, I don't know if I was really in a place in my life where I was ready for that at that moment. I think it was maybe too much for me at that moment and I didn't really have the family environment necessarily to support that at that period in my life. But it was part of the growth. It was part of the growth. It was part of getting ready and I was doing other things to prepare consciously, unconsciously over, the, over those ten years. And then all of a sudden, I look and it's like, well, they weren't two different things. They weren't two different things. You know, Reb Sadaka Kohen says that, um, he says, the, everyone says the world is getting further and further away from God. He says, I say... The world is getting further and further away from God on the outside and coming closer and closer on the inside. This is one of the great Torahs of all time, especially for our generation. Because so many times you see people who on the outside look like they're getting further and further away. Now I've got a pierced fill-in-the-blank or several pierced fill-in-the-blanks, right? Right? Now I've got orange hair 
and tattoos, right? But meanwhile, what's going on on the inside? Now I'm partying like crazy or I'm addicted, right? But what's going on on the inside? On the inside, it's like, okay, that's not it. (laughs) And I know because I did it. And that's not it, because I know because I did that too. And that's certainly not it, because I did that ten times and that's not it. And I thought that was it, because it was fun the first thirty times. <laughs> but then it almost killed me. And now I realize for sure that's not it. So, on the outside, it looks like, who is that guy? That guy is so far away, man. He's so far away. She's so far away. But on the inside... Something else is happening where you're going, that's bankrupt, that's bankrupt, that's bankrupt, that's not the truth, that's not the truth, that's not the truth. And then when it looks like you're absolutely, that guy would never even walk into a shul in a million years, next thing you know, do you want to put on tefillin? Yeah, I'd like to put on tefillin. They're right there. They're right there because they know everything else is a lot. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, wherever you walk, you're walking toward Israel. Even if you're walking, even if Israel is that way, it's east and you're walking west, you're walking toward Israel. So that's, you say, well, wait a second, it seems like I'm walking away from Israel. What are you talking about? I'm walking toward Israel. Because you're walking away from Israel is going to take you to Israel. If you're honest, and if you keep on searching, and if you keep on asking questions, I didn't know that that story in my life was going to end that way. I didn't know that that, you think I knew in a million years that that, that, that silver plate that came from a competition that took place on Shabbos was going to end up being the foundation, the base of Shabbos candlesticks, and that I'd be giving talks on Torah, that I'd be using, to a large extent, the skills that I, I learned in terms of, you know, spontaneous speaking, basically, for Torah. Not in a million years, I wouldn't have thought that. But that's what I'm saying. A lot of times you go through a period where it's sort of like, for sure God is not here. God cannot be here. And then you look back and you go, oh, oh, okay. You know, you know, one of the things that I always thought was really cool is when they would make um, tunnels through mountains. And people would dig from one side of the mountain, and then people would dig from the other side of the mountain. And, you know, they had some dynamite, but they also had pickaxes. You know, it was like, it wasn't, it was hard to dig a hole through the middle of a mountain, a road through the middle of a mountain, and then you'd figure like, well, then they got to meet, right? Because how are they going to do that exactly? They're very imprecise. Very imprecise science. I'm sure they were much more technically skilled than, than, than I know that. But it seems like a lot of guesswork is involved in that. But it's sort of like you're above and you're below, you know? The above, the inspiration is coming down. 
And the below, you're kind of, when you're just chopping through that mountain, you're in the dark. You don't know which way you're going exactly. But you're trying to connect your below with your above. You know, Reb Shlomo says so beautifully, who are the dead people in this world? What is death? Death is when your below is not connected with your above. You've got to connect your below with your above. And, uh, and a lot of the connecting of the below to the above comes laboring through darkness. Because you don't know exactly how to do it. And a lot of it is an experiential thing. And you've got to trust your kishkas on a large level. You have to say to yourself, well, that just felt really good. You know, I remember when I went to Jerusalem as an adult, and I went as a kid, and, you know, I just tell all of you, everyone should go to Israel if you can. But if you go, be aware that there are two Israels. There are two trips to Israel. I'm talking as a, uh, you know, as a tourist right now. There's the dead Israel, which is they're going to take you to see rocks. Don't go on that trip. (laughs) Please don't go on that trip. Because you won't go on a second trip, Okay. And then there's the living Israel. Israel is filled with mind-blowing people and fantastic restaurants and all sorts of amazing places. And also graves of tzaddikim, which are hot spots, you know? Like, you know, you think, well, what could be more boring than that? Oh my goodness, they're like, you know, these portholes to the next world where you can daven and, you know, there's, you know... Jews are great. I mean, who else goes like grave hopping, right? But we do, you know? So, <laughs> um, and that's, that's fun. That's, do that, Israel. Do that, Israel. Be very careful to do that, Israel. Anyway, I remember I had just come off, you know, a trip where I had gone to the archaeological sites, determined that I was never going back. And then when I became sort of more connected to Torah and everything like that, I was like, well... All right, I'll just try it again. I was like, whoa, this is is the greatest place in the world. And when I went to Jerusalem, I remember just feeling like I've never felt this level of peace before in my entire life. And it's like, you know, if you read the newspapers, all they want to tell you is like all the killing that's going on and all the war that's going on and everything like that. You get to Jerusalem and you find out why... People are fighting for Jerusalem. You want to hear the irony? You know why they're fighting so much? Because everyone feels so much at peace there. (laughs) So then they're like, I want it. No, I want it. Then they start fighting. Which is crazy, but, you know, we've we've got some work to do as, you know, as humans. But, um, But nonetheless, it's because, it's because that place is so filled with peace. You know, you know, you sit at a Shabbos table, a Shabbos table. It's like, what is it about a Shabbos table? You know, but, you know, it's if it's, you know, I mean, ideally, you know, sort of the model Shabbos table, you've got a white tablecloth on it, got the challah, maybe the candlesticks, some nice plates, some some chicken soup, whatever it is. And you are just chiropr- you are chiropractically aligned with the universe. 
You know, there's no other way to say it. You're just, your soul is plugged in. And you feel it. You feel it. You feel it. And um, so much of, um, so much of chiseling through that dark mountain and laboring through the darkness is going, okay, which way, which way am I supposed to go? You know, there's an interesting halacha. I hope I'm saying over this properly. I think I am. Which is that, you know, we're supposed to be facing east when we daven. That's for sure. You face Yerushalayim, right? But many of us get into a situation where we don't have a compass. And we don't know which way is east. So sometimes you can look out the window and you can kind of figure it out. But sometimes you can't. You just don't know which way is east. So I remember hearing, and again, I hope I'm saying over this properly, in the name of the Rambam, you just ask yourself, well, which way feels east? (laughs) Just... Try that, you know. And a lot of us, you know, we we've got to we've got to learn how to ask ourselves what. Forget about what I've heard and everything like that. What what feels right? Now, I have to um, I have to make sure that I'm communicating properly because someone could say, you know, what feels right doing this thing that the Torah itself says. Don't do. The Torah says, don't do it. Don't trust your emotions on that one. That is not what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know what feels great? I, my joy, and I'm telling you, I never feel better than I, when I make an enormous campfire on Shabbos. I love making new fires on Shabbos. And I heard that guy, David Sachs, gave a speech that I should listen to myself. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is, is that, is that if, you, if you allow yourself to experience the Torah, you will feel something, and that feeling itself will help to guide you further within it. And that that feeling itself, if you, if you allow yourself to get into a good environment, not every environment will be that inviting, in which case, that's not your crowd. doesn't mean it's not legitimate, it just means... That's not your craft, you know. A lot of times it's sort of like people will say, well, you know, I tried that. Well, who'd you try it with? And then they'll describe the experience and it's like, well, that would turn anyone off, you know. You know, one of the first things that I learned from uh, Rabbi uh, Shlomo Schwartz was don't confuse Jews with Judaism, right? (laughs) A lot lot of people, (laughs) see, there's something that, it's, it's a bit of a tragic irony, but this is the reality of it. If you think of the NBA, right? The NBA, the National Basketball Association, has five players who get on the court. And they're the players. And those five basketball players are arguably the best in the entire world. Any group of five of basketball players in the NBA could be arguably the best in the world, Okay. I mean, there's such the top, 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 one percent, a half percent, half of a half of a percent in the world. Okay. Now, when the Jewish people are in the world, all 16 million of us, however the number is, you know, should grow. We're all on the playing field. We're all starters. (laughs) You can imagine some are going to be better emissaries than others. But you know what? You're on the field and you're a starter and that's what it is, you know? So, so, so one has to realize that, um, 
that, that they're not always going to get the best explanations. I'm certainly in that category. Um, you know, but, um, or, or the best role models. Uh, put myself in that category as well. But nonetheless, they are out there. And if you seek them out, you'll find them. Um, so, so just to, just to wrap it up, um, I just, just want to say that, um, that, that life actually makes sense. Um, and it's not random, but it is mysterious. And mysterious doesn't mean, um, doesn't mean that God isn't there. He's, he's absolutely there. And, but, um, but we need AIDS. We need AIDS. And when you go through the darkness, if someone's offering you a flashlight, take the flashlight. Because why, why wouldn't you want a flashlight if you're going through darkness? Why wouldn't you want that? It's just, it's not logical. And the Torah is that flashlight. The Torah is that guide. And um, we should just avail ourselves of that. And um, Hashem should bless us that just the, the level of goodness and the level of sincerity, and it's cumulative over the generations. We're not starting from scratch. Every single generation has gotten us another rung higher on the ladder toward Shemayim, toward the third base Amigdash. And Hashem should bless us that we should see it with our own eyes in this world rebuilt. Thank <laughs> you.